Hello, humans. There's a, a funny story behind how our guest today, Neetha Bhushan, came onto the podcast. It basically started with Hay House, a publisher, writing to us and saying, hey, we have a new author. She wrote a book called That Sucked, Now What? <laughs> Would you like her on the show? I did a very quick vibe check on her YouTube channel just to see what she was about. And I was like, yep, let's try it. Since interviewing her and since reading her book and since listening to her podcast, which is called The Brave Table Podcast, her book is, as I said, called That Sucked, Now What? I've come to appreciate Nitha as an informed friend. <laughs> I know what she's about. I didn't, starting this episode, rather than give you the whole backstory of who she is, I'm going to let you fly in blind just like I did with just a quick vibe check. I had a lot of fun with this interview. At times, I kind of was like, all right, you know what? Since I don't know much of your work, let's just see it. Like, let's do it on me. We had a lot of fun, and I really am happy to be a part of her new book coming out, That Sucked, Now What?, which I'm fairly certain I have said exactly that way on this show previously, because we all know hard things are going to happen in life. That's that's a given. Your Part of life is relationships. Part of relationships are people dying or relationships ending. Part of life is hardship and feeling hard things. Life so much isn't necessarily about avoiding hard things or doing hard things as much as what's your relationship to these elements of life that will come, that are a guaranteed to come in your life. As somebody who's sensitive, that is often a question that is incredibly important to me, is when the hard stuff happens, then what? And hopefully that's a question that we cover in this conversation you're about to listen to. That sucked, now what? Is available January 31st, which I think will be tomorrow, if you're listening to this, the day this episode comes out. And if not, I'm sure you can buy it anywhere. It's a fun read. She's a very fun person and personality, and I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with a new friend. Hi. Thanks for coming all the way from Houston. Is that right? Austin. Austin, sorry. Oh, it's okay. I'm going to take that over again. Thanks for coming all the way from Austin. <laughs> oh my gosh, thanks so much for having me. Um, it feels good to be back. I have to admit, I don't know much about you. It was a complete vibe thing. Mm. So I forget who reached out. It might have been a publicist yeah. or someone from your team. Yeah. I saw the title of your book. Mm. That sucked. Now what? Which is the mood I'm in lately. Mm. I want to hold a ton of space for your pain, for your trauma. But if you're not willing to talk about what's next, I don't have the time to just be an endless punching bag or emotional dump site. So I love the concept. It's like, yeah, that sucked. What's next? I think I've probably said your book title on the podcast before, just in it being kind of like, yeah, that sucked. Like life is really hard and really painful. Yep. Now what are we going to do about it? Mm, oh, what a mantra. You also had a YouTube channel. Because my reading queue is completely booked, I have no time to read anymore. I was Amazing. like, cool, I can do some prep just while I'm driving, <laughs> while I'm, you know. I, I forget when I knew exactly. Where I was like, cool, yeah, she's coming on the podcast. I think it was when you quoted Plato and then said, or was it Picasso? And then there's like faces <laughs> on your It was just really silly and fun. I'm trying to bring a little bit more of that into my life. Oh, yes. So, thanks yes. for being here. Yes. Well, I'm so glad to add some more joy and fun and play. 
So I want to just ground you a little bit. Mm. So if you could close your eyes. I want you to think about all the work that you've done to get here and that there's going to be thousands of really cool humans listening to this show. And unfortunately, you're stuck with this unprepared fool <laughs> as the host, <laughs> but that you are going to give the best interview of your life and everything that you need to say, you're going to leave it out here for the listener so they really understand who you are and what you're about. Mm. And when you're ready, let's go. Ooh, I love that ritual. Thank you. It's a new one. So uh, good. So, Nitha, who are you? Big or small? Mm. What comes up when I say that? Who am I? I feel like I am a ton of things. I am multi-hyphenate, multi-passionate, multi-dimensional. I am a mother. I am a serial entrepreneur, a lover of life, an adventurer, a community gatherer, a lover of humanity. So what happened? How'd you end up here? <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, I'd, I'd have to go back, right? So going back to where I grew up, I grew up in Chicago. My parents were both immigrants. My mom was from the Philippines. My dad was from India. They were the typical, like, quintessential Asian parents, tiger parents, if you will. And so it was a lot of pressure in that way. And they just wanted to keep up with the Joneses. So, like, we had your Indian dance classes, piano lessons, violin lessons, all of the things. I remember literally being schlepped to ballet, <laughs> piano, Hawaiian dance class. I mean, it was just everything. And then I had to grow up fast. So at 10 years old, I became a caretaker. My mom got diagnosed with breast cancer. And so... I had to grow up and I was told as a young girl, my dad would say, you know, you're, you're strong. You're, you're, you're a strong woman. Well, a little girl at the time. This priming would then take me to about six years of my adolescence, my teen years, and losing my mom at 16. And then a year after that, we would lose my brother to sudden asthma attack. And he was oh, man. a year and a half younger than me. Yeah, that sucked. And so No warning. Uh, no, no. I mean, now that we're kind of 30 years later or however many years, 20 years, I'm not that old. I'm like, <laughs> how old am I? But we think, obviously, he was the closest to my mom. And so there's like, and I've sat with, you know, healers and things in the past. And they said, well, he was so close to your mom. He, wanted to, he wanted to go with her. Yeah. And so, but that was so tough. I mean, it was paralyzing to the core because there was, it was shock. It was shock. It was literally a year after my mom died and it was on my youngest brother's 12th birthday. So it was just like this overwhelming amount of grief and trauma. My dad was this Indian Punjabi dad that was a single father then. And in that time, during that time frame, to be an Indian Punjabi dad in a society where everyone's like a couple, you're kind of, you know, there's there's this, we feel bad. And so then the idea for me and the mantra for me became, let's not let anybody feel bad for us. We're not broken. We are not broken. So this is kind of like what's in my mind. Two years after that, my dad would get the diagnosis of his life, which was stage four lung cancer. He actually passed away 10 months later. 
to that diagnosis. And you're still 16? And I was then 19 at the 19. time. Okay. So 19 at the time, my brother, my youngest brother was 14. And so, you know, we're orphaned and I'm now taking the reins along with help from grandmothers and aunts. And honestly, I think the through line for me during that time, and you shared that you became a drug addict, I think for me, it was community that really was the big pillar of support in that time. But my coping mechanism was overworking, overdrive, overdoing, overcompensating to prove that I was worthy, to prove that I'm not broken, to prove that we're not going to be seen as less than in others' eyes, right? To fit in. We were already culturally ambiguous. So people would always be like, wait, what are you? So it was like this very weird mystere. And then on top of it, you know, imagine being like a teenager. People are like, wait, wait, you just lost your mom? Like it was the most awkward question to answer when you went to college, you know, the college nights and you're meeting other kids. And I'm like, yeah, there's no fucking way I'm going to. Were you aware share that. of the wreckage and grief and turmoil, or were you just kind of like, I am just going to focus? Yes and no. You can't deny, especially if you're going through a period of time where everyone's dying around you. And I think that if we look and see now, we can numb ourselves with our phones, we can numb ourselves through so many different things and not feel the feels. For me, growing up without really a phone <laughs> growing up back then, it was so different. It was, well, I'm going to overwork. And I had to, it was survival. Survival between the ages of 16 and 19. I had to work one, two, three jobs to support my family. And so the mantra then became work hard. Yeah. Because that was the mantra of my parents. Let's do this because it'll make them proud. That got me to another 10 years of life. I went to dental school, rose the top of my class, all of the things making the ghosts of my parents really proud. Until I would, you know, I buried all of these emotions and locked it up, thought I was good, locked all of these emotions up in a closet until... I finally would hit a very tumultuous rock bottom, which would be on December 31st. And December 31st, now a decade ago, so this was 2011, I found myself just looking at a mirror and just asking myself, like, how did I get here? Because at this point in my life- What was here? It was being in an abusive marriage. Okay. And it was being in an abusive situation and actually recognizing and admitting for the first time- to myself that I was actually in this funk, this weird place. When I recognized that for myself, it was, okay, I've got to leave. I've got to be authentic and real with the people in my life, which was at that time my great aunt and my other aunt, my dad's sister, my boa, um, who I wasn't really truthful about. I was obviously hiding and I was so ashamed that I was in this mess thinking like, how did I even get here? But I was so afraid of what people would think. I was so afraid that people would think I was broken again, right? That mm -hmm. pattern that I experienced in my teenage years. 
Yet it was the first time that I finally surrendered because I had kept those emotions locked up for so long that it was now fully bubbling up to the surface of the grief, of the pain, of the just internal turmoil that I couldn't bury it anymore. It was like the rug was like this high and I was like shoving everything under it. And, you know, I needed to just pull the rug out and say, okay, here's all of the stuff. We need to start sorting through it. Can you help me? And that was me literally asking for help for the first time because I, I couldn't do it alone. Who'd you ask for help? My brother, actually. Wow. Yeah. So you told him, hey, I'm in an abusive relationship. Well, he we get me out of this. He actually knew the whole okay. time. And it was one of those things where he knew and I was in denial. Yeah. I was protecting because anybody who's in a codependent relationship, you're protecting the person that you want to protect. And you kind of get a little bit isolated from the loved ones that are around you. It was finally when I said, okay. And he helped me pack everything, you know, in my bags, whatever I could from my home that day out. He was like, we have to tell. At this point, it was like my ex's parents as well as my aunt because she had no idea. Right. And this was the one thing that I was so afraid of. And I was like, oh, God. And he's like, Nita, we, we have to do this. If you're asking for help, let everybody, let let people in. And so it was like, all right, let this grief and overwhelm from like a whole decade just wash over me right now. And so that's the day the healing began. The healing journey began. Wow. I've been in a physically abusive relationship. It's It's mm-hmm. hard to capture how... It happens because from the outside, people always say like, well, couldn't you tell? And it's like, well, not really, because with every situation, I'm sure there's some just overtly ones where you go, wow, this is fucked. I'm out. That wasn't my experience. It was like, you know, things happen slowly and there's always kind of a reason for it. And Mm. there's a justification. And I don't know if it's different in the body of a man, but so I wasn't getting like physically damaged. I was Mm -hmm. just getting like, like my, my soul and my spirit were getting tarnished. Because the bruises weren't, yeah, I wasn't breaking, I wasn't getting broken bones, but something else deeper was breaking and my relationship to what love looks like was was breaking and everything was kind of falling apart. I don't know about you, but like when you finally leave too, that, that also rocks the boat. My leaving was not without consequence. Mm. My leaving rippled through my life for two years after that. Oh, wow. So did t- you Did you get a restraining order? She uh, got arrested and- wow. um. The, I actually let the DA talk me out of it. Mm. And so I ended up in a moment with the San Francisco DA. I've actually never said this on the podcast before. Well, we're going deep. Yeah. It was either the DA or the or an assistant DA, but some, somebody was basically like, are you really going to make me do this? Like, look at her. Look at you. And it was kind of wow. like this bigger guy, little girl. And yeah, that's what happened to me. Wow. I think that... You know, now, because I actually, I did get a restraining order and I want to just honor you. Thank you for sharing that because I I think that for so many of us who maybe even suspect friends that are in these toxic relationships, you know, it's so easy for people to say from the outside. And I think that, and I don't know about in your situation, but so many of my family and friends, like my aunt, none of them liked my ex. <laughs> and it's so easy to say like, oh, well, we, we never really liked him. But then the other caveat to that was, well, you wouldn't listen either when we would try to even 
poke hints. And even during that time and after when I decided to pretty much leave everything and that whole life behind because I was a cosmetic dentist, I thought, you know, I built up the ranks and did so well in my life. And I was like, yes, climbed on top of this mountain to try to get out of my, you know, cloud of this grief. But in actuality, I was now swimming in it because this is the first time ever that I would actually confront all of those emotions from decades worth of loss and heartache and grief and turmoil. At this point, it was like mixed in with fear and PTSD of like, oh my goodness, like my nervous system was so unregulated because for that first part of my life, it was just all trauma focused, right? In one sense, I was just in survival mode, which added to my layers of grit and resilience, which is obviously what I talk about now. But I would say, you know, Nita 1.0 during that time of my life would, would be like, well, resilience is you're you're building toughness. You're you're strong. Because I'm sure all of your listeners have probably heard if you're building resilience, that means you are tough, right? And that's what I was told when I was younger. And once the healing began, it started to take shape in the sense of, well, actually, resilience comes from the Latin word resilier. And resilier means to bounce, to flex, to actually have this sense of flow. Because if you take an actual glass that's made out of glass and you shatter it or you let it go, it will shatter into a million pieces, kind of like I did on that December 31st. But if you take a ball, a rubber ball, bouncing ball like we would give to our kids or even a basketball, you let it go. It's rubber, it's tough, but it actually bounces. And so that kind of began the journey of how do you actually build resilience? And from a way where it's it actually is in flow. And so I then do- dove in deeply through different sorts of alternative practices from meditation, yoga, breath work, to somatics, energetics, psychedelics, sitting with different kinds of people all throughout the world and really got so fascinated around how leaders make decisions. And I think for me, it was A, to build my confidence again, because I'm sure for you, I don't know, but this was my experience. After that relationship, I, d- I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to date. I didn't know like what I wanted. I had lost so much of my sense of self that I had to like work really tough and like getting that back. And that meant diving head first deep into immersing myself in what are some of those things that really light me up and actually bring me joy and fun and play because the first half of my life was so dark and heavy in this contrast. Then it led me to starting a nonprofit for women and girls confidence. And that began- That's what it's called? No, it was called Independent Awakening. Okay. So Independent Awakening was the actual name of the organization. And that started taking me outside of Chicago, my hometown. And literally the groups that I knew I started to come out here to the Bay Area to learn more about nonprofit management. I took a course at Stanford, and this was still while having my practice. And that course would change my entire trajectory because there 
I think it was probably like a three day thing or something, but I was with all these big wigs who are like climate change, poverty. And here I am with like my tiny little organization. And the professors came from Stanford, the business school, because they were talking about how to fundraise and how people do it at the business school for actual traditional companies and startups. And I'm like, whoa, startups. And, you know, this was the mecca of it. And it just blew my mind because from that point or up until that point, I was such a perfectionist. Everything. Are you cured? I'm I'm recovered now. Really recovered? Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was a big it was a big thing. I mean, I, as a cosmetic dentist, you're working in millimeters, Sam. Yeah. So it's a thing. Yeah, I still do. <laughs> I'm getting better though. <laughs> it's it's a process, and yeah. I'll share some of my tips. It's been an unraveling, I would say. I think motherhood definitely has expedited that massively. I love the the concept of resilience being to bounce and to sway. That's I hadn't thought about it like that. I had a mentor. The first part of my life was about getting really tough, mm. right? Like I was like this scared, shy kid. And so I joined wrestling and I learned how to fight and I did jujitsu and I did Muay Thai and I took steroids and I like wanted to become this being that couldn't be fucked with. Mm. And so I got like a lot of like mental toughness too. And it was a mentor of mine who pointed out like, and he used, I think, resilience differently, but he's like, your, we'll just say toughness, is not a virtue anymore because you're now able to be in unhospitable places. And my wish for you is that you become sensitive again so you can realize when you're somewhere that you're not supposed to be. And so I feel like I have this superpower, which is that I can just bear down and grit and do the stuff that sometimes needs to get done and in some moments it creates like a heroic scene you know when you overcome something truly hard but like what I'm learning now is to try and figure out how to adapt that in a way that it really holistically serves me because last Monday I felt myself on the edge of a spiral Mm -hmm. I had spent a weekend with a lady and she had a hard time being with me right Mm. I I was like a strong personality and I just felt like I was emotionally stepping on her toes left and right I left there with all that same conversation of like cool you're just gonna fuck up any relationship Mm. you get into and I went from feeling like I am the world's most eligible bachelor on the planet to it's completely fucked and doomed. Mm. My therapist, who's no nonsense, just was like, cool, let's do a cost-benefit analysis of breaking down right now. What are the benefits of you having a complete spiral mental breakdown? And stuff starts coming out like, well, you get to stop what you're doing. You get to drop the weight. I said, well, you get a really shitty vacation, Mm. right? You get to be in bed and be miserable and feel like a worthless piece of shit, but you are (laughs) resting. Right then it was like, that's the payoff. Mm. I have been burning the candle at both ends. And to get rest, I'm willing to like nosedive into, because it's hard to figure out like what's, things are going really well. What's the payoff to completely spiraling right now? The payoff for me was that shitty vacation. Which is sometimes exactly what we need. Right. So the idea of turning resilience into not just about what you can do, but like what you can weather successfully, 
not just can you get through the storm, but like can you can your ship get through the storm still seaworthy? Exactly. Yeah. No, and I, I, I love that definition and analogy because I think so many times, especially for men and young men, and I think the idea that resilience comes from that toughness, I think that's something that's anchored in a lot of us going through early stages of like adversity when we're younger or any athlete, you know, being able to say, well, the grit to the tenacity to like hold on to something. And for me now and what I've kind of the culmination of so much of the research that I've been so excited about, passionate about, and obviously connecting the through line in all of my stages of grief and in the grit and the turmoil and the heartache. When I actually wrote my first book, Emotional Grit, I used GRIT as an acronym, Grow, Reveal, Innovate, and Transform. And when that book came out, and mind you, at this stage of my life, I was, you know, I had I'd done a bunch of research and had traveled to, you know, all these countries and wanted to do these non-traditional, completely, you know, different ways of healing and alternative modalities and, you know, East and West and a lot of things from my upbringing, you know, where I was initially resistant to because I'd probably grown up with it, having a dad from India and going and visiting when I was younger, but didn't really care because I wanted to fit in, obviously, it started to come back and in my healing practice. And so the times when we were in survival mode, it would be every Sunday, my dad, without a doubt, no matter what was going on, no matter if my mom was sick or, you know, she was in the hospital or what, he would go in his room and meditate for sometimes two, three hours. There was three of us when we were like growing up. And so we'd be running around, getting the mala beads from his like altar, running around chasing each other because like that's what we wanted to do. And he would like come out, chase us, but then like go back to his practice. And so from an early age, I knew that there was this sense of spiritual practice and we would hear him chanting and we would hear him just be so focused and so dedicated. Didn't matter if he heard shit cracking on the floor or like us kids fighting that was his time and that was his piece and so fast forward you know as i was now starting to sort and connect the dots in my own life there's a concept actually there's two really big concepts that i talk about in the book and that sucked uh now what is the first part is the bounce factor and it's a concept that basically came through because when I was going on my first book tour in 2016, I was here quite a bit. And one of the moms from one of the schools in Palo Alto contacted me, asked me, can I do a talk for their community? And I said, oh my gosh, me? Sure. Great. Absolutely. I'd be so honored. She's like, I just heard from your book from another mom. And I just have a question, like, can we build resilience? She's like, I've read through your story. My kids in their classroom, they're having a tough time because they've lost kids to suicide in their in their class. And can you just come and talk to us moms? Because are we doing the best that we can? Like, what can we do differently? 
And that question kind of stuck with me because here I am talking about grit and my first book, but it was it was as if this next part two was coming up, this question around, do you have to go through really hard things in order to build resilience? Is it only that ones like us who've been through some shitty or sucky moments can actually come out stronger on the other end? And can it be built from a really young age, like these young teens, so that they don't end up killing themselves because of pressure and, and what, whatnot? And obviously that was stuck in my mind. And so the bounce factor now of what the download that's come through is it is comprised of four parts and there are four parts to actually bouncing. And it's not just the toughness or the amount that you need to go through in order to not break, right? But to actually bounce back and in fact fly forward after sucky moments. But it's the combination of well, first, looking at your upbringing for this mom, you know, she was worried, am I too much of a helicopter mom? Because a lot of moms, as you know, in that area, they'll probably call the teachers, postpone, sure. you know, the the assignments, see if Jimmy can get a different date because they have to go somewhere else. Right. Like I was so fascinated about that part of the world based on this mother's request. And it's not uncommon. Right. Because we want the best for our kids. And for those of us who are struggling to figure out, like, how can I make peace or actually increase my ability to have resilience after tough moments? Well, the first thing we want to look at is our upbringing, because in certain parts of the world, like, I don't know about you, but for me, I couldn't talk back to my parents when I was young. There's no way. Like cultural nuances. How were you viewed? Were guys viewed differently than girls? I know in my family, the boys can do whatever they wanted. Oh, in my family, <laughs> men were the source of all the world's problems. Oh, man. So I was raised by a single feminist. Oh, you know, man. So it was like oh. very anti-man in there. Oof. It, yeah. and, and it was the opposite, right? <laughs> <laughs> very patriarchal, you know. Like, I would have done well in your family. You would have really done well. Yeah. It's like, come, come on over. How were were you encouraged to actually speak your voice, speak your mind, right? In in Jewish traditions, the both the the men, the the girls and the boys get bar mitzvahs and, and bat mitzvahs. And that's your way of sharing a speech in front of everyone on your 13th birthday. That's building resilience, right? Yet in some cultures, like the Asian cultures, you're not allowed to talk back. Even until you're like 25, in some cases in my in my household, mm. so then that can contribute to us not taking any risks, us dimming our light, not wanting to leave a terrible relationship or leave a job that fully sucks. And then we get into the second part: How are you building good stress? And when I talk about good stress, I'm not talking about weathering the storm, if you will, I'm saying, how often are you actually exposing yourself to good states of stress? Because research has shown that if we are exposing ourselves to, let's say, for instance, cold water plunge, nobody likes it, but we know it's good for us. And guess what? If you sit in there for 10 seconds, maybe the next day you'll go in for 20. And maybe by day four, you'll go in for 30 seconds without without wanting to come out. And that's just exposing ourselves to that good physical stress. Well, what about with our emotional 
stress or our relationships? What about sharing a boundary with somebody that we love or speaking out our truth and sharing that we were in a toxic relationship or maybe even telling the person that you love, you know, I didn't really like the way you spoke to me. That really hurt. Most of the times we shy away from those conversations. Most of the time we want to backtrack or we want to avoid confrontation because it's too hard or we don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. But that's usually, that's the second phase of building your bounce factor. And then the third and the fourth is your emotional capacity to feel. Your emotional capacity to feel because most of the time we live in this even in my case, this toxic positivity of, and that was my coping mechanism. I'm like, I'm going to find the silver lining in everything. There's always a silver lining. I know that I was chosen for this and, and, and I was meant for more. And that became my way of like very focused to get out of that tunnel of that dark cloud that I was in. But looking back now, it's it's actually like, well, actually that sucked is not really taking us through this victim spiral. And the now what is not positioning us as we're heroes, but the bridge between that sucked and now what is the sharing of the vulnerability in saying, well, fuck, that really sucked. I'm so sorry that you're going through that right now. Or I'm so sorry that you keep attracting the same types of people in your life. Yeah. To really acknowledge that so that we're feeling seen and heard because that's just what most people want. So you have a successful practice. Mm. At some point you decided to jump into the work that you do now. Yeah. What inspired that? What made you know that I have to do this? Like in your own words, what are you here to do? What's your superpower? Mm. What are you specifically good at that this space, this crowded space needs you specifically? Yeah, I definitely think that helping others recognize how fucking amazing they are just by owning their stories, just by owning their upbringing, just by owning the different chapters and seasons of life that they've been in. I've been such a community gatherer and such a proponent for community for my entire life. Like back when I was a teenager, I'd be gathering friends around even in the hospital room to sing to my mom when she was sick while most teenagers are probably like out drinking at parties and things like that but we would get a crowd of folks just to serenade my mom or play board games at home so that sense of support and community i know how to gather i know how to galvanize people to make change. And I think in this stage and season of life, I'm so committed to helping others celebrate the duality of the sucky moments. But then there's also the magic in the chaos, the magic in the mess, the joy in the chaos. And now that I've entered motherhood, I have been able to embrace it so much more because not just being a mom of one, but now mom of two, it's a little shit show. <laughs> Every day <laughs> is a different day. And it's also been the most radical roller coaster because in a 24-hour period, you can feel all the feels all at once. But yet, if we kind of zoom out and take a 30,000-foot view, we realize that that's just the human experience. I want to start gathering people together. <laughs> What do you do at your gatherings to make it 
memorable to make it so everybody who shows up ends up leaving feeling like they belong to something or that they know these strangers in a way that they don't know. How do you design your gatherings? Yeah, so it's it's funny. I actually I have a whole 16-page guide on how to actually step-by-step Where's that? create your your support soul posse is what I call them. So when you actually purchase three books, that sucked now what.com, you actually can get that for free, but I'll I'll share it with you right now. I'll give you a little taster of it. So I think the idea that most people when they are either looking for a new community or where they are looking for friendships Most of the time, as we get older, we are busy. We don't want to put in the time or we just don't have the time. And it takes effort. It takes effort as if you are dating a human. It takes effort. And so when you are thinking of building community or gathering, and and it doesn't have to be a lot. It could be call three people today after you're listening to, you know, the show. And maybe it's three people that you actually want to get closer with. Send them a note. And, and, and many times we are missing the key factor. We're missing vulnerability. We're missing the art of being able to say, hey, Sam, you know, we really had a great connection at that networking event. I'd love to go out to coffee with you or I'd love to, would you be open to spending an evening where I'll corral two other people and we would do X, right? And if you are somebody that doesn't want to just have a dinner gathering or you want to make it intentional, and this is to your point, your question that you're asking, is you want to go through, well, a beautiful container, and this is what I talk about in the guide, a beautiful container of time, especially now if all of us are busy, we don't have like four hours in the night where you can just shoot the shit, hang out and, and yeah. do all that. But maybe you have two hours and maybe you can do those two hours from 12 to two or four to six or six to eight. For me, my sweet spot is like five to seven because it's right after the workday. You actually can decompress. This can be an outdoor gathering for me in the stage of life where I'm in. I like to do circles where everyone is being seen and heard. You want to identify what container are you actually creating? Who do you want to allow in the container? What kinds of personalities do you want to allow? Because If you are, let's just say you want people to share vulnerably, you want to talk about that sucked, now what? What has sucked in your life in the past year? What are some challenges that you've been maybe facing privately that maybe nobody else has shared? The idea of being able to go first when you're setting up a vulnerability container is to make people feel safe. You can do this by having maybe trays of food if you're going to arrange this at your house or another great place is to have it at a restaurant but maybe you can take the extra step and have little note cards written out and where everyone's sitting down everyone gets a little note card and it's elevating that experience because if you are going to be intentional and very careful in creating and and fostering the juiciness that can come up or the magic that can come up then we've got to think, well, who and what do we want to call into the circle? Which is why I say we can sit in a circle because why? Well, I would say that ancient times or even ancestrally, our ancestors would sit in circle. They would sing. They would share. They would go around and tell stories, right? And usually why? Because you're kind of around a, a fireplace or something like that, fire outside. It's our way to actually see each other 
see whoever is in the circle, but also honor them and what they're actually bringing in. And you also want to make sure, this is the other tip that I'll give, is you want to make sure that while you are the gatherer or while you are the creator of this experience, you don't want to be you know, this is not like a lecture (laughs) and it's not your time to shine. You want to hear from everyone. And so to be able to create a container where, hey, we're going to go around and maybe you start with a question card like I shared, or maybe there's a few prompts that you create beforehand, or maybe you kind of like do a popcorn style where one person sharing and another person sharing. The beauty of these gatherings is there's a start time And there's an end time. And we want to make sure that the start time and the end time is obviously respected because you want to make sure you're honoring their time that they're committing to this. And perhaps maybe there's a ritual that you start out with. Like you started us out today with a very beautiful opening. And I love that. And I do that on my show as well is whatever is meant to occur, you know, and and be shared, let it be shared in this container. So you already set the tone even before you started this, where I felt immediately grounded. I felt immediately drawn into you, your essence, your presence and the way that you share. But then also at the end Perhaps maybe there's a closing ritual or maybe something to close the space. So I think that those are just a few to get started in creating a container. Putting on your coach hat for a second, because I want to see that that side of you. I know you you coach workshops, right? I do. You gather people, you have clients, just to give people a flavor of what your methods are and how that looks. What would you say to somebody like me where I am kicking ass in a ton of areas, I've had this new thing pop up and all the voices are popping up that all my relationships are going to fail, that people fall in love with me very easily, but then two years later, they're just have gone mad you know, at how hard I am to be with. So I'm experiencing what I think is a form of self-sabotage, which is someone who I think is awesome, who is interesting to me, just kind of express interest. And I went through this crazy spiral two days ago, and that's on the heels of this thing that happened a week before. So it's very active in me. There's a huge opportunity to recognize this thing that's activated and to start working on it. Where would you start to approach something like that? Well, I would just start by asking you a question. How often do you feel that way? Yeah, so I think it comes up when there's a little space in my heart to explore intimacy. So when I'm just like, yep, you know what? I'm 33. I'm just going to give this year to myself and not date, right? That was my plan for 33. Yay. Uh, you know, just this is just going to be Sam's Jesus year. Uh, that's what they call 33. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's, it's very and true. I'm going to kick ass and do all this stuff, which I am doing. And then, of course, the gods hate my plans. So, of course, the second I'm like, yeah, this is my year. It's like my heart has a little bit of room that I didn't know it had. If I'm considering dating someone who doesn't make me nervous, all is well, and we can have a very fun time together. But if I consider dating somebody who's kind of like a stretch, someone who's really living large and living full and doing the things that they want to do in life and showing up in integrity, the fear for me is like, ah, oh, there's no way I could match that. Hmm. Like, I'm not enough for that. The second I start to consider that, rather than being here in 2022, I'm in like 2024 when they're sick of me, Mm. right? When all my 
character defects and my inflexibility and weird quirks and need for the dishes to be washed a certain way and the towels to be hung up a certain way have gotten in the way. And so there's this giant gap between where I'm living and where I am. I wish I could just say, yeah, I'm just going to get present and it would go away. But I guess what I'm looking for is the willingness to go up against those thoughts, Mm. right? Like not to, because I think what's happening is that I want to just cave. Mm-hmm. Right. And just go, well, I'm not ready for this. Maybe the next time there's a tournament or a chance to compete in life, maybe I'll be ready then rather than to test my mettle now and see if I'm up for something. I love the awareness that you're bringing to that because I think that's so powerful. I'm curious when you're starting to project this idea of, well, it's not going to work. It would never work. And kind of going into that spiral. Is there something that triggers that feeling? The trigger is a sense of like inadequacy, comparison, and just not seeing us at the same level. Can you recall a time when you felt inadequate? Until like 11 years ago, 10 years ago. I felt inadequate my whole life. I felt small. I was terrified of people. I felt weak. I thought I was like just less than for like a majority. Like you don't tattoo well made on your hands for no reason. I saw that. I love it. So not being inadequate is the new... My whole life has been inadequacy. What would it look like for you to feel fully well-made and fully adequate? And being with someone that is so on their game and also so wants to be with you and so sees your light and so sees the magnetism that you bring, the radiance that you bring to a room, how how would that make you feel? I think that would look like being willing to try because once I'm in this is a terrible word for it once I'm in a competition once I'm in the tournament I'm good I want to win at all costs and I will do what is necessary but there's this like performance anxiety that happens beforehand Mm -hmm. where I just gave a talk to 1300 people and I'm calling the promoter like two weeks before like yeah you know let's just cancel like mine's during the lunch block everyone's gonna want to eat like let's just cancel it and he's going no dude it's too late You don't get to cancel it. And of course, I go out there and I killed it. I mean, I absolutely killed it. I can say that now. Immediately after (laughs) and then the next two days after, I was like, that was awful. But I just rewatched the replay and I'm like, this is amazing. Mm. Wrote in my journal, like, don't forget this is the talk you tried to cancel. And so it's just like pre-performance anxiety where I'm like some deep fear of failing, some deep fear of in trying something horrible will happen. Mm. right rather than oh this is just win or learn just go out there and either you win or you learn which is how i would like to approach things but there's this really powerful sense of just by trying something something irreparably bad will happen Mm. let's play it out what if something bad does happen then what in the arena of love i'll get really hurt heartache is very destabilizing for me so i worry about letting down my business partners and investors and the people who believe in me. So there's like a fear of it hurting other areas of my life. Mm. It will set me back, right? Like I'm notoriously slow at recovering from heartache. Mm. (laughs) So it feels like, oh, well, I will have to wait until I can date again. Mm. Those are kind of the top three that pop up. Yeah. What if the opposite would be true? I would very much like that. (laughs) I would like to (laughs) land on a relationship that I love. How are you when you are fully in your power and you feel fully seen, fully adequate in a relationship? There's a 
word that you just said that's gonna like make me a little emotional which is like like i really want to be understood because i'm weird i truly believe there is a, a better way to <laughs> water the plants or you know i have like these weird particulars historically i drive people fucking mad i believe that when i'm with the right person i probably won't drive her mad no because she would love all of those things about you yeah but there's this fear where it's like i think i present as a good package and then there's this disbelief when people tell me they're interested in me mm. because my history looks like yeah of course you're like smitten with me mm. But then slowly and surely you're going to get tired of my shit because it's like it's it's not stuff I can turn off. Mm. So it's like these cute little quirks now, but soon there'll be giant resentments. And that's the beauty with the right person, obviously, right? With that right person, there will be that dance. There yeah. will be that flow and that resilience of the flow of the dance where you both are in motion, moving to really kind of mold and figure out what works well for you and what are the unapologetic aspects of you that are like, okay, I can, I can dance with that. To the other side of perhaps maybe there are things that are quirks about her that you'll flow and dance with, but we get to do that relationally in a relationship. I want to challenge you. Instead of thinking, and perhaps maybe we could do this for 30 days. You can text me later. Okay. Let me know. But the next time you, perhaps maybe it's, an, and I'll share with you, <laughs> I did something when I was doing my 60 days of dating after I had done all of this work and sat in Is all- Is this captured somewhere? I might have shared it on the podcast, on the Brave Table. I had like a spreadsheet of- Are you an analyzer? I was, remember, per, yeah. recovering perfectionist, right? And so I had a spreadsheet and I would rate the guys that I would go on dates with from zero to 10. And it was like on the weirdest things, like they're zero to 10 on spirituality, zero to 10 on like growth, zero to 10 on what spiritual books they had read, zero to 10 on countries that they've been to, like how cultured they are, how traveled they are, like all of these small things. It's not what you would see at like Love is Blind or I don't know any of the other Netflix shows. I was getting a lot of tens and I was like, wait, but I'm not feeling anything for any of these people. And I'm like, they're great guys, but I'm like, what, what is going on? And a friend of mine was like, Nita, because you're treating it like a freaking spreadsheet. Like, why are you putting your researcher hat on? And so funny enough, my husband never made the spreadsheet. You never? No. How would he do theoretically on the spreadsheet? Um, he actually, he probably, <laughs> <laughs> he probably wouldn't have made it. <laughs> he probably wouldn't have I made it. That. There's a few categories he'd be like, okay, Tenzin. And there are things that, you know, and I think looking back, it's like the universe made was, you ditch it before. Well, yeah. yes. And or like realizing like you could have all of the creme de la creme at tens, but you're not really feeling that human connection and you're not allowing yourself to feel because part of you is still afraid. Mm -hmm. Part of you is still scared. 
Terrified. Yeah. Terrified. And so I would only, and I don't know if this is you, but I would only let people in to a certain point because I would like to think that I'm an extrovert and I'm very warm as a human being. And so I do let people in, but when it's of the heart, especially in that time of my life, it would stop at a point. Mostly everyone would get like friend zone because again, I was I was so terrified. I was fearful. These are the two things that I want to kind of pass on to you is I had to still sit in the suck. I had to still sit in the suck of like, okay, what is coming up right now? This is an awareness exercise, but what's coming up right now of where am I still feeling like I'm not enough? Where am I still feeling that this is going to not ever work out or that person's going to treat me badly or whatever? What part of little Nita did I still need to heal? Or what part of little Nita was coming up where I have to put my hand over my heart and say, okay, I've, I've got her because we don't need to react that way anymore. Our nervous system is good. We are good. She's coming up because she is still scared and she's there and she's still part of me. Yet I know that the Nita who I've become and where I want to go and who I want to attract is going to take care of the little girl that had to fend for herself and survive all those years. Then I asked these two questions. Well, if I want somebody who's honest, I fucking have to be honest. If I want somebody who's vulnerable, then I have to lead the way. It's kind of the same thing when you want to create a community. You got to lead the way. You got to go first. So it's the same thing in these interpersonal relationships, whether it's friendships or even love. It's like, hey, I want to do this thing. I don't know where it's going to go, but this is all of me. And if you're ready, let's go. Like, let's drop in. And I think a lot of times we, of course, have these expectations in our mind as to why or like think 20 steps ahead. But I want to circle back to it with you of little Sam is going to come up, is going to come up in many ways, in many, in the many women that you will date in your year of 33, Jesus year. Jesus year. (laughs) Every time that happens, every time you get triggered or there is a spiral, I want you to ask yourself, okay, what part of little Sam needs to feel understood or needs to remember that he's well-made? And there are ways to, in somatic practices, there are ways to reduce our anxiety levels. There are ways to reduce and calm our nervous system when we're getting riled up. You know, and one of the ways, and for those listening that are not science geeks like my, like myself, one of the ways that we get into this fight, flight, or freeze, right? The cortisol rises, we're like angry, or we get riled up after a, a comment or an email or whatever, a troll. And versus when we're actually wanting to calm our nervous system down. So a really quick way to do that is before you're going to react, before you're going to do something, before you go into the spiral thinking that this isn't going to work out, you can take your hand and just literally place it over your heart and remember to breathe. We can do it right now. Ready? Let's do one more. (sighs) 
And this is just a somatic practice to just remind yourself that, okay, I've come a long way. I know you're in there. I know you're flagging this down as a potential red flag, but I got you. I see you and you don't have to come up anymore because I got this. I am going to sit in the suck. I am going to explore that and I am going to see what else is still coming up and lean into that discomfort. There's two different types of emotional release practices in the book, similarly to what I just shared right now. But I'm curious to see for the next 30 days, every time, put your hand over your heart and you're leaning into the suck. Okay, you're on. Cool. I'll do it. Cool. I like to end the show the same way every time. But I add a twist to it every time so that way people can't really prepare for it. Okay. If I was to slide my phone across the table and you could pick it up, on the other end was you three years from now Mm. as you continue to build your practice and continue to go off in this new direction that you've gone off from, from dentistry, now into helping people and becoming the best coach and mentor that you can become. What do you think yourself three years from now would want you now to know about what's most important to getting Mm. to where she's going to go? Yeah, I would say, Nitha, you got this. Remember to take time for yourself. And remember there is 24 hours in the day, yet with each and every step of your evolution, each and every phase of life, there will be new and interesting moments of challenge and and lean into them because that's the next step for you to explore your growth edge and what's next on the horizon. Thank you so much for your time. Mm, so good. And besides that suck now what, where are the best places to find you and stay in touch and follow your journey? Yeah. So Neetha Bushin, on, uh, I think that's the, the, the place where we have the most fun. And you have the Brave Table podcast. I do have the Brave Table. Yes. We drop episodes twice a week on Monday and Wednesday. Wow. It's been so much fun. We'll have to have you on, Sam. I would love to be on. That'd be so fun. Thank you so much. Ah, This was amazing. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. If you like this episode, please join our community. Go to patreon.com slash hellohuman or patreon.com slash howtohuman. They go to the same place. You can join for any amount. You can join our community events that happen every Monday night for the most part. We're either reading a book together or working together on study halls where you get to bring a project and we just collaborate and spend time together. Or we're just hanging out. It's a great community. It's growing. We're getting new members by the day. And with each new person that joins, it feels like how could you ask for a better match? for this little group, and maybe you're one of them. That's patreon.com slash howtohuman to join our community. Of course, you can always help the show by sharing it with friends. If everybody shared the show, we would have no problem booking any guests we ever wanted to book. Our audience would be big enough. We could just get anybody we wanted. So if you really want to help the show, help it grow, share it with friends. If nothing else, write us a review on iTunes. It's free to do takes a couple minutes and it's a very sweet little love letter I get to read as they come in. So those are the three best ways to help us and stay connected. I hope to see you at one of our community events on Monday night. And if not, I'll see you next time on the How to Human podcast. Have a great day.